Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Hello, Restitutio. This is part three of Joshua Anderson's Announcing the Kingdom Evangelism class. In the previous teaching, we learned what evangelism is not, as well as some ineffective methods to avoid. Today, we'll hear about what evangelism is and one key to sharing your faith more effectively. Anderson also explains the history, and this is really fascinating, of how our culture shifted from seeing religious matters as objective to subjective, as a matter of fact to a matter of personal preference. The end result is that people now see evangelism as rude and inappropriate, on par with trying to convince everyone your favorite kind of ice cream should be their favorite kind of ice cream. Knowing this can help us navigate the challenges of sharing our faith authentically today. Now, as I open up every one of these podcast episodes that this ministry, Restitutio, is dedicated to restoring authentic Christianity, evangelism is part of that. Restoring authentic Christianity and living it out today. What does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the 21st century? And evangelism is something that very much, even before the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus had his followers doing. Jesus did himself, and he had his followers doing. And then after the resurrection, that's in fact the reason why we have the Gospels. The Gospels were literary evangelistic documents that Christians not only put in the language of the time, the Greek language, which was commonly read throughout the Mediterranean world, but then also translated uh, very early on into so many other languages so that this message could spread. And then they went out as missionaries. We see that with Paul, we see that with Peter, we see it with Barnabas and John Mark and so many others, such that this message spread far and wide. I don't want you to think of evangelism as being some sort of weird activity that only certain super-Christians do. I, I think of evangelism as part of the package. If, if I want to be an authentic, restorationist-minded follower of Christ, somebody that's actually trying to peel back the layers of tradition, get back to original Christianity, evangelism is part of that. So anyhow, that's just a little, little plug on why... I'm, uh, I'm playing out this class and why I think it's so, so important. And hopefully it'll help you in your own life. I, I think especially next week as we get into some of the more practical tips, we'll see some real concrete things that you personally can do in your own neighborhoods, for example, to get the ball rolling. So anyhow, without further ado, here now is episode 317, What Evangelism Is with Josh Anderson. So we covered a bunch of stuff about what evangelism is not. So we all said, okay, it's not all these sort of ways. We all share and could share tons of experiences of how it didn't work and didn't look great or didn't feel so great, didn't feel so effective, uh, felt forced or whatever. Um, How should we actually be? Well, I'm just gonna say something here. I think you should just be normal. (laughs) You should be normal for Christ's sake. And that is a pun intended, for Christ's sake, for his sake. Be normal, okay? Just be normal in evangelism. We read earlier 2 Corinthians 5, one of our main controlling texts for this day on reconciliation. It said in verse 13, if we are out of our minds, 
as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. That's 2 Corinthians 5.13. Think about that. What does Paul mean when he says, if we are in our right minds, it's for you. And if we're out of our mind, it's for God. You see, there's two axes there. There's the like vertical axis between you and God. And there's the how, how crazy you are for God. <laughs> right? How out of your mind. I'm just crazy for God. Or not so crazy for God. And then there's the horizontal axis between you and your neighbors. And there's whether I'm in my right mind or not, whether I'm normal or whether I'm acting not normal. Do you see? And Paul said he was, if it's out of his mind, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Well, Hash that out. What does it mean? If you're crazy, super awesome, on fire for God, crazy for God, and you're really crazy to look into other people, <laughs> not normal, then I have that marked as spiritual weirdo <laughs> on the sheet. So I'm just on fire for Jesus. I'm so on fire that I'm going out to people and talking to them out in the middle of the street and handing this track and asking them to pray right now you know, to accept him as his Lord. Or I'm in the middle, like I said, in blockbuster video, down on my knees, weeping, asking my friend who needs to confess Jesus as his Lord and Savior in the comedy section right there. That's not like normal behavior of everyday life, right? Or the guys. People in my normal life don't usually have signs and come and start yelling at me that I'm doing bad things. It seems weird. I don't have any sort of context or normal relationships where I have people yelling at me about my personal choices. Why are these guys doing that? Right? Yes, they're on fire for God, but the behavior is unnormal. But okay, what about if you're not normal, you're being really weird, but you're not really on fire for God? So you're weird and you're not on fire for God, then you're just a regular weirdo, <laughs> not a spiritual weirdo. <laughs> right? Okay, well, what if you're not crazy for God and you're just a regular normal person? Just a worldly person. Not on fire for God? Normal. <laughs> Just a regular worldly person. But where is the powerful evangelism? Where do I have that there? You are crazy on fire for God in your life, and you're just a normal person like everybody else. <laughs> That's where the powerful evangelism occurs. See, people think... No, Josh, I mean, shouldn't it be that I'm supposed to be on fire for God and weird? I mean, all this stuff, like, we're not of this world, right? People are going to think that we're strangers and we're aliens and all, and all this stuff. Yeah, that's right. Just the fact that you are a Christian at all is going to make you, in some sense, weird, right? I get that. I get that. Um, so I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there is power. And living a normal, looking like a normal looking, relatable person that people know, who in their normal, relatable daily life are living for Jesus. That confronts me. You know, when I went through a period of serious doubting in college, I didn't talk about this yet, but I went through about two years of extreme doubting, where I was like, is any of this real? And God used that for incredible things in my life, for one to get me to start loving apologetics books. I just read like everything. Red, red, red for years. Hundred, literally hundred books. But you know what really bothered me when I was going through that time? It wasn't the 
ferocious atheist guy who was just so, you know, the type that's like, God doesn't exist, and I hate him. You know, <laughs> that guy doesn't bother me because I'm like, yeah, he's obviously bitter, and this dude's got some issues, and uh, right, he doesn't affect me at all. You know who really caused me to doubt? Was the, it was the atheist dude who seemed normal and like a nice guy. He's an unbeliever who seemed kind. You know what? He actually had some better traits than me. <laughs> normal looking dude. He's like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not being bitter here. I'm not trying to say. I'm just saying, you know, I don't believe. That affects my faith. That's like, oh, I start saying like, you know, yeah. Why are you, so, why are you normal and saying that calmly? You shouldn't be able to reject Christ like that. Why? Because there's power in that square. Persuasive power. Right? I'm not saying truth. I'm saying if you want to be persuasive power, it's normal and on fire for God. So I'll give you an example. On October 2nd, 2006, you may remember the story where Charles Roberts the, was the gunman who came into the Amish school. Do you remember this? In uh, elementary school, right? And he shot five Amish schoolgirls. Insane evil. Insane evil. But how did the Amish respond? Do you remember? They forgave him. See, we all even remember the story. Incredible forgiveness. Supernatural forgiveness. Incredible forgiveness. Uh, let me ask, you all remember the story, but let me ask you, do you remember any person who converted to become Amish after that? Was it? Do you know anyone? Were you yourself thinking like, man, I, I think I should become Amish? And maybe there's a little attraction there. Like, wow, there's... That's incredible, their lifestyle. But are you seriously thinking like, of changing your life, actually moving out there, actually selling all of your stuff in your house, and like the dude did who sold his Texas ranch and moved to the car? Are you thinking about going and becoming Amish? Why? Because they're a little weird. <laughs> Just say it. It's, they're a little bit weird. They're a little out there. It's not normal. Like the buggies and, and the, right? No phones and... All that. I'm not seriously considering becoming Amish. Why? Even though they are insanely on fire for God, showing supernatural forgiveness. Imagine if it's a normal case, a normal person doing that. Then guess what? Psychologically, the non-believer can say, oh, that's just, that's not some weird out there thing that I could never be. This is somebody who looks like me. I could be like it becomes a psychological live option for them now to be modeled. Because they're not going to model the Amish life. But if you're just normal for Christ's sake, they may think that they could model yours. So be normal. Just be normal. Okay. And I think the last thing I'll say about this is I think a lot of the... the the spiritual weirdo section, the super on fire for the Lord, and God bless him, because God does use super. I'm not saying anything bad about that, right? I myself have been blessed, right? And uh, even people giving tracts or door-to-door -door and all these other sort of things that regular worldly people would consider not normal. Uh, he does use it. But I think sometimes some of these strategies can really be used, or at least they could be used, as a cover-up to get away from the normal life. 
Because look, if I just give somebody a track one time, like at a baseball game or something, I don't have to see that person again. <laughs> I don't have to love them. When their kids go to jail, I don't have to go over to their house and offer to babysit you know, all of their children so they can go to the jail and deal with it. I don't have to have the awkward conversations of all these things. I don't have to follow up. I don't have to do any of that stuff because I just, you know, asked these people one time if they wanted to say a prayer, and then I left, man. I'd never see them again, right? A lot of the spiritual, a lot of these evangelism practices and that quadrant are really, I think, motivated by getting away from the hard work of being in your normal life, being spiritual and Christ-filled, filled with the Holy Spirit and love, fruit of the Spirit, and doing difficult things in your sphere of influence of the people you do know. Not the people over, like, in Japan, way far away, in that cross, glorious cross on the hill. These people here, we're avoiding them. Okay, so what is evangelism? What is it? We said all the stuff it's not. We said when we're doing it, being normal. What is it, actually? Well, I got a working definition here. And so because I'm a philosopher, we start with a first-pass definition. I'm not saying this is 100% it, because you can probably think of some things as well. But we'll just start with this on the bottom of your page one there. Uh, what is evangelism? We'll say, for our purposes, announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and inviting others to enter it, to repent and believe, through our words and our deeds. Okay, well, let's break it down bit by bit. Announcing the good news of the kingdom of God and inviting others to enter it, to repent and believe through our words and deeds. An announcement is an objective fact, right? When you announce something, you're saying this is real. And it's not primarily, again, I'm not saying it, the, the invitation and response isn't part of it because I have it in there, inviting others to enter it. But I will say that evangelism is primarily not a personal invitation. Because personal invitations are more about meeting people's subjective needs, isn't it? You know, I'm asking you to maybe, you know, possibly for you, if you want to, to allow, you know, Jesus to be your personal uh, Lord of your heart, you know, for you, if you'd like to, maybe. Is that evangelism? <laughs> no, it's an announcement. It's news we'll get into in a minute. It's like a royal announcement, right? Because we know, and Sean will tell you a lot about this from his background, about how the Gospels use some of the similar and same language that the Romans used for royally announcing that Caesar is Lord, right? And on their coins and stuff. And the Son of God. You guys know this stuff? What is that? It's an announcement. This is an objective reality. It's the difference between being person-centered versus being reality-centered. A lot of our evangelism strategies end up putting the person at the center in control. And we psychologically view our interaction with them as you're the one who gets to choose and make a private choice here, a subjective personal choice. You're in the driver's seat here. That's not it, guys. It's God-centered. God is the one in the driver's seat making God's announcement about God's king. And that is just news that people need to hear. 
So I remember when I was, so I don't want to get anybody mad, so I'll skip a president back. Um, <laughs> when I was driving around one day, uh, years back, and I saw a bumper sticker, maybe you guys see these, that said, not my president. Remember that? They were saying, you know, Obama was not their president. Well, I'm sorry, but that doesn't make any sense. Whether or not you like Obama, right? He objectively is the president of the United States. Correct? And just because one, even if you voted for him or not, <laughs> whether you voted or chose, I mean, yeah, you get a vote. That's great. But objectively, he is. <laughs> he is the president of the United States. And nobody would come up, and, and nobody even thinks of saying, excuse me, sir, would you like to invite you know, Obama to be the president of your heart for you? Right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It's, 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 he is the president. And when the election night happens and all the news is going and they declare the victory and they say, what are they doing? They're making an announcement of objective reality. This is the way the world is. He is president. Or in the Romans' time, Caesar is Lord, they announce. Or in the Gospels, Jesus is Lord. That is royal news. Objective reality, just as clear as Obama or whoever it is who is the president, right? The gospel is more like that. And see, the problem is, just to give a very short history lesson, <laughs> through a series of objections back in the 1800s, whenever we get Darwinism coming up in the natural sciences, we get the rise of biblical, higher biblical criticism, and then we get Freudian psychology coming, and we get all these pressures arising against Christians. During the early fundamentalist movements, what Christians did is we sort of retreated from that position of objective truth. And historically, we've moved into a period where we basically retreated to the safe space of making faith a private and a personal decision based on your, your personal choice, based on feelings, based on emotions, based on preference. And then we said science is about objective stuff out there, and faith is about private choices here, subjective, right? And it used to be that Christians, I mean, we were the ones who started the universities, right? We made the universities. All these colleges, these great colleges you guys out here on the East Coast, right? They're all, they started as what? Seminaries, Christian schools, right? And what happened was when all these criticisms and objections started happening against Christianity, what the Christians did on the faculty is they resigned. And they went to go start whatever Bible college over here. They left the cultural institutions, the powerful institutions of our culture, the institutions that take all the people who are going to be professionals and scythe them through, funnel them through for four years and teach their minds and then send them back out into the world to do their jobs. They took, we took that institution as a matter of history and just gave it over to all the atheists and the unbelievers and said, we're going to go start Podunk Bible College where it has, doesn't have that cultural power of shaping the world. We handed one of the most powerful institutions ever over to the unbelievers. It's called the fundamentalist flight or whatever. You can read about this stuff. It's just a matter of history. That was such a bad choice, <laughs> right? And now, now, look where we are. We're at a place to where faith now 
because we, were, we made that trade, we said, you can have the science and stuff, and we'll keep faith in a safe space that can't be touched by objective fact by making it personal. And what we did now is if I take my personal belief, I shove it down to you, what's that? That's just rude. <laughs> we, this, the Satan has designed the culture to be just plain rude. I'll give you an example. An example of the difference, and this comes from Greg Kokel, I'll share some more of his stuff later, but he talks about the difference between insulin and ice cream. There's insulin and there's ice cream. We all know the debates about like the best flavor of ice cream. And you have your opinion, and this person has theirs, and, but then there's always the guy who's like, no, 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 dude, objectively, it's double chocolate, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that is the most best flavor of ice cream, right? And we laugh and stuff because why? Because we know there is no best absolute flavor. It's a matter of subjective personal preference. To you, this one tastes the best, and to them, that one tastes better, right? We all know that. And the guy who just forces his personal subjective preference onto other people as objective truth is just a butthole, right? They're just being rude. That's the situation we find ourselves in, guys. And that's why you feel awkward about evangelism. Because it feels like you're being that guy. Well, guess what? It is an illusion. All that is an illusion. Throughout the vast majority of history and throughout the vast majority of other cultures, even today in the world, that standard of objective, objectivity and truth when it comes to religious matters is still there. Yeah, so insulin versus ice cream. Well, ice cream's like that. What's insulin like? If you're diabetic and you're having a crazy attack, what do you need to survive? Insulin. You can't come up and say, well, you know, you think insulin, but I'm going to give you rat poison. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. There's an objectivity to the truth here. If you're having that diabetic attack, what you need that will save you objectively is insulin. Regardless of your personal belief, your preference, your emotional like state, whether you like it or not, whether you voted, whether any of that, you, it's an objective fact. Guess what? The gospel is like that. But the people you're talking to, they think it's like the ice cream. They think it's like the ice cream. So what are we going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? You're talking two different languages, guys. The, the words coming out of your mouth are not the words that they're hearing. They're filtering everything through for him, personal, not for me, um, you know, if maybe I want to. Uh, they, they're in the like salad bar religion mindset. Religion for them is more like a big nice buffet when I get to take a little bit of Buddhism that I like and I get to take a little bit of meditative prayer, and I get to do a little bit of Jesus, because everybody likes Jesus, and I get to do this, but it's just a pick-and-choose type thing. It's a choose-your-own-adventure game. So we got to get people that we're talking to. Well, first of all, you have to realize this. You realize the person you're talking to is living on the choose-your-own-adventure model, and I'm living on the biblical story as part of reality model. Well, let me transition now. So we got the announcement part, right? Announcement, objective reality. Announcement of what? What are we announcing? We're announcing the good news. This is news. And it's not just news, it's good news. 
Like, I live where I'm in Arkansas, we're like the Walmart headquarters land. So we call them our benevolent overlords. Yeah, so for better or worse. But a lot of corporate people are having different bosses get switched in. And there's always talk like, oh, who's the new CEO? And who's this? And who's that? And the new boss coming in. Are they a good boss or a bad boss? Is he that guy who's over there? Or this guy, right? Well, and it's news when they find out, even national news sometimes, who's the CEO or who's this or whatever. Guess what? There's a new boss of the universe, right? And his name's Jesus. And that is an objective fact of an announcement that he's the boss. But is that good news? That's great news. You know why? Because what's his boss like? Whether or not it's good news that he got this new boss depends on what kind of person he is. Think about what kind of person Jesus is. Just close your eyes for a minute if you want to. And think about him on the cross being nailed, being murdered unjustly. His hands and his feet and these guards below him stealing his clothes. They don't care anything about him. Casting lots. While he is being murdered by these people, he prays for them. Father, Please forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you think about that for a second? What kind of person he is? He's the sort of person who, while he is being brutally murdered, is praying for the people's forgiveness who are murdering him. Guys, That guy, that guy is the boss of the entire universe. That is really good news. And guess what? That guy is the guy who's going to be the judge. That's great news. That's really good news that he's the one who's going to be the boss. He's like that? And he's the king? That's incredible. Oh, we did find it. Despite my incompetence, let's roll the tape. (laughs) If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, biser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger, Biser, that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. 
And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul or Priscilla and Aquila traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants because the last are first and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. Amen. Yeah, if, if you never got a chance to check out Bible Project, highly recommended. Uh, all their videos are just incredible. But yeah, so he said there, something happens at the hearing and the preaching of this story, that the story itself has transformative spiritual power. That what does Paul say? Faith comes by hearing, hearing. and hearing the right. Where, how does faith come? Hearing. By hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing the that rhema, that story of God, and 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 particularly Jesus, who I just described to you being murdered and forgiving those who are murdering him. 
That's the climax of the biblical story up to that point, right? That's the climax bit. But the problem is, the people who we're talking to, they're not seeing that as the climax of a real event, real life story. Even Christians have trouble with this, where we separate the Bible and Bible time into like a separate sphere off from our you know, real life. Where we can almost take the faith and take Christianity as almost like a religious language game that we play. Where we know a set of complex rules on what you say and what words to use and what vocabulary and when to say them and in what context and, and what you're supposed to believe or say. And, and we just play a game. But then when you get to your real life, you live and think and behave and you act angry and you act distrustful like God's not taking care of you and, you, and all the things you actually believe kind of boil up out of your, into your behavior. There's your language game that you're playing and then there's sort of your real beliefs bubbling up into your life. Even we have this, but especially non-believers are hearing your story and your announcement as something sort of separate, right? So when you're talking to people, this is my suggestion, you must talk to them in a way that highlights the fact this story is a real-life, objective, tangible, historical events that actually happened in the world. And he really was there. Jesus, you know, this is how Christianity is different from every other religion. In every other religion, there's always a, pri a teacher who has some sort of private religious experience. Maybe Moroni got the, like, whatever plates and... Or Muhammad experienced it in this cave by himself. And then Siddhartha Gautama had his like enlightenment thing. And it's a private religious experience that happened to them that they go out and tell the public. But Christianity is the only world religion where a public person had a public ministry, did miracles in public, died on a public crucifixion, raised before the public, and his, the public who saw it went and told the public. Amen. That is vastly different, right? And this is where apologetics will be coming in if you can be reading some of these things to equip yourself to, as you're talking to people, they will catch on. Oh, he's, he's talking about this like it's real. <laughs> like this is real life story stuff. And N.T. Wright really helped me here, where he has this concept of viewing the Bible as it's like a heuristic to help you view the Bible as a, as a play. And he has this thing where he says, the Bible's sort of like a, a play that has five acts. And there's a creation, the first act, then fall, right, then Israel, Jesus, and then the church. You can see it at the bottom of page one there. Five-act play, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, supposed to be a comma, church. <laughs> the point is, that Wright makes, is in this play, the actors all came before us and did the things that happened on the stage with Israel, and Jesus came and did his. And then we sort of find ourselves, as all the people who watch this play, coming up onto the stage, and, re and, and on the stage. And we're like, okay, guys, you have the previous lines. You know what everything that was said before. Now you go out and improv the rest. Like we know where the church is going. It's, we know the end, the last final act when the curtains come and the kingdom comes and all this. We know where we're going. But right now in the church phase, 
You yourselves are, in, are living it. It's sort of like, it's not a play or a show out there. We all have to get up and start walking on the stage, and then we, we become the actors in the play. And isn't that the experience as you read the Bible itself? Think about the genre, genres, different genres of different books in the Bible. It starts with like primordial past, right? Like in the beginning and stuff. And then there's this ancient history of this family, right? And then there's uh, letters and tribes that happen, you know, and prophecies and things. But as you progress, and then the, the biographies of Jesus and stuff, but as you progress through the Bible, it leads in towards personal letters. Letters by real-life people. I, Paul, am writing this letter to you guys, this church over there. You see, as you read the Bible itself, it has the effect of pulling you into the story and realizing, my God, I'm in this story. He literally addressed it to, and everybody in all the churches who call on the name of Jesus. <laughs> That's me. It's not some book out there for some past thing. The book itself is designed to pull you into the fact that it's this world, these real cities. So you have to, be, you have to fight against that in yourself first before you're going to expect the people that you're talking to to also believe it as real life, this world objective reality. See, when you're, and you're going to have to go against that because when, when you've been going to school, they teach you Egypt history as this Egypt history thing. And then you go to church and you learn Bible history about Exodus as a Bible thing. And you probably couldn't sit there with a world history map and map the two together on a timeline because there's the real history of Egypt that we learn in school, and then there's our Bible history. It's the same world, guys. It's the same book. And you have to live it and breathe it and be that, right? You have to be finding yourself in the book and alive and it's real. And then as you, as that deeply gets inside of you and you're living your life, as, he is king. He has poured out the Holy Spirit as actual tangible power for me to be moving. Then you can start to become like my buddy Aaron Wong. Walking in that power that Jesus has came out into the real world doing ministry. Aaron Wong was just living the kingdom of God as real. We have to get out of our church, church time, drop all those walls, and for evangelism to really happen, we have to repent in that way to make it real in our daily life, normal life. That's where the power is going to be coming in the people that we're, that we're meeting. Because we're asking them, what are we asking them? We're asking them to come live in a real story. Well, everybody's already living in some sort of gospel story. They already have some narrative that they are living in. Because the gospel's written in their hearts. It's written in their hearts already. So everybody's living out of a framework, like a worldview, of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Everybody thinks in some way... Um, Actually, if you want to skip to page three, where it said listening up, we have creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Everybody's living in some sort of a story. Creation. Where do they find their identity, their sense of purpose and significance? What do they think is like the real important thing of who, why it is they, they are who they are? What's the fall? Whom or what is the fundamental problem that they're blaming for things that they're broken in their lives? What does redemption look like for them in their story that they're living in? 
Who or what are they looking for as their savior to rescue or to deliver them? And then finally, new creation. What does transformation look like? And what's their ultimate hope for the future? I'll give you an illustration. I was talking with a guy who lost his job recently, and he wanted to meet and talk. And he said, um, actually, it wasn't recently. This was quite a few years ago. <laughs> but you know how recently all gets collapsed as you're talking. Uh, but he was saying how, you know, I wanted to meet and having some troubles. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're having some troubles, dude. You lost your job. And you're like, I have all these financial issues. But then he said, yeah, it's not really even my job. Uh, I just feel like, on a deeper sense, I feel like my whole identity is collapsing because of work. Because his creation narrative was that he, who he is and his purpose in life is his work. And his fall is that somehow work also had to do with dad's approval. And his father died when he was young. So his fall was that his dad, his father had died, and he can't get the good job, son, and he can't get the work, and he's losing his jobs, and it's all falling apart. His redemption for him, what he's trying to solve and fix and trying to get the world to get right is he's looking for that perfect job. He's looking for the way to work and to earn it, to get, and he's looking for a dad who's not going to die, who could tell him good work, son. And for him, new creation would be to have dads that don't die and jobs that are fulfilling awesome purpose. And I'm sitting here listening to all this as he's saying it, and you know what I'm thinking to myself? There's good news for him. <laughs> There's good news for him. There is a dad who doesn't die. Right? There is an identity and a purpose and a work of being in the image of God that he gave you a, him a calling to do, meaningful work. But ultimately, there is Jesus who did the ultimate perfect job on his behalf and who heard the job or the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that Jesus embraces him and brings him into his family. He's part of that. He will have a, that new creation. So as I was talking to him, I'm realizing he's living in this story, like a gospel story version. Our job, what we're doing in listening to people, is listening for that narrative. What's your, what's your identity? Where are you getting your purpose in? And why is it messing up for you? And what is it you're looking for to find that ultimate healing? And then connecting that with the true gospel true, real-life story. God actually did fulfill all those things for you in Christ. And he will redeem and new creation, fulfill all those longings that you have for whatever the story is. You can pick one, think of one, anyone. I promise you, the true gospel story has solved their creation, fall, redemption, and restoration narrative that they're living in. So our job is to find it and then uh, to connect it. Back to our definition. Good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, and I'll go fast here because you guys are good on kingdom. Because you have Sean. He's writing a book. <laughs> and when he's writing a book, you know he's talking about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, scripture says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. So we're announcing good news of the kingdom of God. Um, at the fundamental level, uh, I've heard it described about what a kingdom is. It's just a king and a dome, <laughs> right? You have the king 
and he's ruling over some sort of dome, right? It's just God's kingdom, God's the king, and his dome is everything. All of creation, all of reality that he's made. But for a limited amount of time, he has decided and allowed that other wills other than his own will have say so in his dome. To have free choice. Um, you could, Dallas Willard describes the kingdom as this. It is, it is God, where God is reigning. It is present whenever what God wants done is done. When what God wants to be done, when his will is done, that's when the kingdom is broken in among you. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Now, I'm not giving you a full kingdom theology here. But I'm just saying one aspect of the kingdom of God will be the range of God's effective will happening. Think about your purse. If you're a lady and you have a purse, your kingdom, you are the king, and part of your dome of your life extends to your purse, where what you want to happen in your purse happens in your purse. <laughs> Nobody else could come into your kingdom and start moving and taking stuff out, right? <laughs> Guys, no, we don't go there, right? It's just a nowhere zone. We don't know what's in there, right? Uh, what you want done in your purse is what happens in, in, in your purse, right? That's the effective range of your will. We all each have little kingdoms, all of us, in that sense. Our opportunity is to submit our kingdom and our will over our spheres, even our purse, unto God's will, under the effective range of what he wants done to get done. And every single person, for now, has a choice to do that. That's the period we're in, where God is allowing a choice. So we're announcing the good news of his, and it's good news that what he wants done to get done, because what he wants done, by definition, is going to be the best thing. Because <laughs> he's the most wise, the most beautiful, the most loving, the most good, the most right, honest, pure. He's God. Be great if what he wants done is done here. So we take our little range and submit it unto his. And then we invite others to enter it through repentance, uh, and believing. And then I think now we can break for lunch and when we get back, we'll do the last bit of the definition by means of our words and deeds. Well, we're going to cut it off here for this week. You can check out previous sessions in the podcast feed or by visiting restitutio.org. And also on that site, you can leave comments about this episode if you have anything to ask as a question or to critique or offer as a way of expansion. Uh, I would certainly appreciate that. I wanted to read out a comment from our last episode, 316, What Evangelism Is Not. Robert Stevenson writes, I would like to start with what we term the Great Commission, and then he quotes Matthew 28, 18-20, which talks about making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them everything Jesus taught. Then he says, This part of the Great Commission bears repeating an emphasis. Quote, teaching them to observe all that I command you, end quote. When Jesus was asked what is the foremost commandment of the law, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, which should be translated, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus also taught, and then he quotes Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26, which is essentially the Beatitudes of Luke. Well, it's the blessing woe combo, uh, which I'm not going to read out, but it's the part about the poor, yours is the kingdom, 
if you hunger, you'll be satisfied, and and so on. And then woe to you who are who are rich and well fed, and so on. Then he uh, goes on. He says Jesus also clearly taught that divorce and remarriage is adultery. And then he says, I am perplexed that you are giving appealing to Trinitarians to teach how to interpret Scripture. Well, let me pause it here. He he says that he's perplexed that I am having Trinitarians teach how to interpret Scripture. Well, um, since I am not a Trinitarian, I would disagree on how a Trinitarian would interpret Christology, would interpret the doctrine of God, um, but I don't see how it follows that believing in the Trinity means that you can't interpret, say, for example, teachings about the kingdom of God or teachings about forgiveness or any of these other subjects that you know have a great bearing on the Christian life. Someone once told me that when it comes to reading theology, we should chew the grapes, and spit out the seeds. Actually, that was Jamie Engelbert, if anybody knows him out there. Um, Chew the grapes and spit out the seeds. And that's kind of what I've followed in my own development along the way here, is reading from everybody, really. Reading from liberal-minded people, from very conservative-minded people, and not insisting that only people that agree with me completely can influence me. In fact, I would argue that that's dangerous, that whatever your current doctrinal package is, that if all you do is read and listen to people from your own tradition, then how would you ever find out that something was wrong? How would you even know the value of what you have? So, and and this is what I've followed in this podcast right from the beginning. If I find something that I think is inspiring or edifying or educational, then I'll seek to get permission from that person to play it out. And then, you know, my, my hope is that it will encourage the listeners. And I'm wary to commit the genetic fallacy, which is that an idea is bad because the person who said the idea has done something bad or believes something bad or is not part of our group. So I think truth is truth. It is true no matter if Satan teaches it or if the Pope teaches it or if some Protestant celebrity pastor teaches it. And and really, I think it's, it's healthy. It's healthy to test your truth against other people's truths to find out which is the real truth with a capital T. This is all part of the restorationist mindset that you can see in the Restorationist Manifesto, which is on restitutio.org. I've got a video of it and the written document as well, which really lays out the whole philosophy or approach to Scripture that I employ in this ministry. So so I just wanted to take a, a moment to interact with that. Stevenson goes on to talk about two other subjects. One of them is, uh, he writes, while Beckett Cook's story is interesting, his change of affection is not unique. I prefer Dennis Jernigan's account as a better fit for the postmodern concept of sexual orientation, and that Jesus can change a person's sexual orientation. After all, he is married with nine children. Whew. And then he puts a link for DennisJernigan.com. That's Jernigan with a J. 
Or Joe Dallas, he writes, who has written some excellent books on the subject, such as Desires and Conflict and A Strong Delusion. Joe is also married with children. Well, thanks, Robert, for mentioning those two. I don't think we need to pit Beckett Cook versus Dennis Jernigan versus Joe Dallas. Let's let's benefit from any one of these people. I, I could add to that a number of other names as well that have these heroic, inspiring stories of choosing choosing Christ over their own sexual gratification, and in some very rare cases, experiencing some fluidity or even a reversal of sexual orientation. We could also mention Rosaria Butterfield and Jackie Hill Perry, uh, who are two more accounts of of ladies who ended up getting married after they had made the decision to follow Christ. This is an important movement within Christianity. These uh, group of people that are that are standing up and being counted now and saying, "Look, I'm either single for life, even though I'm still same-sex attracted, or I have experienced a sexual orientation shift such that I can now live out the biblical opposite-sex marriage ideal." And, uh, you know, I think it's really an important voice to hear. So I appreciate you mentioning these couple of other names to consider. Uh, Stevenson goes on, If reaching millennials with the gospel of the kingdom is one of your goals, then you will have to distance yourself from the Christian right and the message of hate that pervaded the formation of the Christian right as a political force. And then he quotes a Politico article. Well, on this one, this is a really difficult situation to navigate. I think the Christian right gets it wrong a lot, uh, but I also think the Christian left gets it wrong a lot, and I really don't like the polarizing political ideologies that we all seem to be forced into, at least I'll speak in in America, uh, where there are these, not necessarily doctrinal packages, but policy packages, where if you're on the left you have all of these different issues bundled together. And if you're on the right, you have a different set of issues bundled together. And so it's not a la carte. You're not, you're not picking based on what you actually believe and what you actually support and what you think will work for a society. You're just picking sides between these two options, or as many people have put it, choosing the lesser of two evils. That's one of the main reasons why I do my best not to support a political party or a political candidate. Also, it's illegal for a, uh, a nonprofit organization to do that, uh, but that's not really my main reason for not doing it. My main reason is because I'm interested in what the Bible says. I'm interested in how to live that out today. As far as what policy works for America, I mean, th- there are so many gray areas and complexities and unforeseen consequences when policies get put in effect or repealed from being in effect, that I'd prefer to focus on the specific issues. And we have done that on this podcast. We have done that on immigration and abortion. And, you know, these are really two examples of issues that are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And yet, biblically, there's just so many verses about treating the stranger and the sojourner and the alien well that wouldn't fit in with the political right. And there are 
uh, just tons of verses about loving your neighbor as yourself. And we see, of course, in Jesus' ministry being relentlessly for the underdog, the outcast, the marginalized, the vulnerable on the whole subject of abortion. And that goes against a traditional leftist ideology. So, you know, what am I saying? What I'm saying is I'm not going to go out of my way to distance myself from the Christian right or from the Christian left. I'm going to do my best to be faithful to what it is that the Scripture is teaching and and keep my ears open when it comes to these different issues and thinking about them biblically and Christianly, if I could use that word, and, and then also figure out how I can personally interact and make a difference in my own little world for Christ. So thanks for writing in, Robert. If you would like to add your voice to the mix, come on to restitudio.org. That comment was from episode 316, What Evangelism Is Not, or you can comment on this episode, which is 317, What Evangelism Is. Also, if you'd like to support Restitudio, you can donate online at restitudio.org. Just uh, select the donation option from the menu. And I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.